Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly podcast on British politics from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne, digital comment editor, and this week we'll be discussing the British steel crisis and whether the national living wage is a good thing. To discuss this, I'm delighted to welcome Sir Vince Cable, the former business secretary, the FT's energy correspondent and former political reporter Kieran Stacey, chief economics commentator Martin Wolfe, and Martin Sandbu, who writes our daily free lunch email on economics. Thank you all for joining. So let's begin by discussing the crisis in the British steel industry, which has been prompted by the news that Tata Steel is planning to sell off its British plants. Apparently their operations are losing £1 million a day, and questions are now being asked about whether there is a future for steelmaking in these aisles. Someone who thinks there is, is Vince Cable, the former business secretary in the coalition government, who in an article for the FT this week urged Sajid Javid, the current business secretary and his former colleague, to get over some dogma and a bit of state intervention can save the industry. So Vince, now Mr Javid has returned from Australia, do you think he will or is the government going to let steel hang itself? Well, it's got to be pragmatic. I mean, I'm not a believer in nationalisation as a doctrine, and equally I'm not a believer in a complete laissez-faire as a doctrine. I think one has to judge government intervention based on the evidence and the costs and benefits. And I think in this particular case, you know, there are sensible ways that the government can intervene to avoid the vast costs, social costs and private costs, that will result from large-scale redundancies. The course that I've been promoting in the last few days, I don't know whether anybody's been listening, but is for the government to take over the pension fund. This would certainly improve the balance sheet of the operation, and it may improve the ongoing viability of it as well. I mean, this is what we did with the Royal Mail. The Royal Mail was going bust in 2011 at a rapid rate, and we've had to sell it in due course, but you couldn't sell it with its overhang of liabilities on the pension fund, so we, we, the Treasury took it over. It cost about $11 billion. The um, Tata Steel Pension Fund is about $15 billion. I mean, that's a lot of money, but it's less, you know, it's 1% of GDP on government debt, and that's not a massive problem. So I, that's the step I would take. I think that would probably get through the state aids problem uh, we did for Royal Mail, and it would certainly improve position. Well, the, the, um, the question is, this social cost is huge, the idea that all these thousands of people could potentially lose their jobs in the Tata Steel plants. But the government is being accused of not keeping its eye on the ball here. This hasn't, isn't a problem that's emerged overnight, is it? No, no. I mean, when I was in the government, we spent a lot of time on steel. I mean, I was Secretary of State. We had two Tory ministers, Michael Fallon, Matthew Hancock, who spent a lot of time, as I did, with the steel industry. I've been to all the plants, some, some of them several times. We went through all of their problems, notably the relatively high energy costs, and we did in fact get to the point of launching a compensation scheme to help them with that. But certainly any minister worth his salt would know what backwards what was going on in the steel industry because we had the problems then and they've got worse. 
Kieran Stacey, it's not just, um, I think, the manufacturing industry that's suffering in Britain as well. Energy production has got problems with your two caps on of politics and energy. What's going on here? There's been a lot of blame laid at the EU, green tariffs, pretty much anything you can think of here. Is there any truth to that? Well, people in energy circles talk, there's a horrible word for what problem they face. It's called the energy trilemma. And what that means is there are three things that people are trying to achieve with energy policy. One is that we have energy that is secure, so we know that it's going to be there, whatever is going on in the world. Another is that we have energy that is affordable, and so you know everybody can afford to pay it. And the third is that we decarbonize our energy system. And number two and number three, the affordable and the decarbonization strategies come into conflict all the time. And that is what has happened here certainly with things like the carbon price floor, which was a government policy introduced to try and make sure that it was cheaper to produce lower carbon electricity, that has bumped up electricity prices for consumers all over the place. And the government is now trying to compensate some of those heavy users, some of these heavy industries for that. But that is the reason that it's happening. You know, there there is a good reason to decarbonise your energy supply. You just have to realise that that is going to have an effect on the people who use it. It isn't simply a three-way dilemma, it's a four-way dilemma. The, oh, moti- the, mo- <laughs> the, the, the motivation for the carbon price fall was revenue raising for the Treasury, and I think that's a key factor. <laughs> one thing on Kieran's point, though, Vince, is that um, a lot of well, right-wing commentators and conservative politicians are pointing the finger at Liberal Democrat policies for causing this with green tariffs and what have you. Now, what do you say to that? Well, the carbon price floor was one of George Osborne's brilliant ideas. Uh, we certainly supported the principle of giving advantage to renewable technology. You can argue about whether the strike price is too generous or not generous enough. But I think most people accept, and your newspaper has been very eloquent on this, that there is a global warming issue. You have to price the externalities, and that does mean charging more for renewable energy than carbon-based energy. Uh, Kuhn, I suppose that what Vince has suggested, obviously you come to the point that he mentioned his article about the ideological boundaries here, that Labour are urging nationalisation of the British steel industry, as you might expect from Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonnell here, but it's quite unlikely that full-scale nationalisation is going to happen here. Do you think anything in that realm is going to be on the cards in the next few days and weeks? Well, it's really interesting. Sajid Javid, when he first came into office as business secretary, stopped using a phrase which I know Sir Vince used to use and many of his predecessors used, which was talking about an industrial strategy. Instead, he started talking about an industrial approach. This was very significant. This was something he wanted people to know. He is a great supporter of Margaret Thatcher. He says, by the way, his favourite film is The Fountainhead, the adaptation of the Ayn Rand book. He is from the right, the libertarian right of the Conservative Party. He doesn't think government should be involved in these things at all. This is the first big test of that. Can he stay hold to that principle when there are 15,000 jobs at stake? And, and, and that's going to be very difficult. You've already seen other Conservative ministers suggesting there should be some kind of interim support. Anna Subri was talking about temporary part nationalisation the other day. That is something that uh, Sajid Javid very quickly quashed, but he's going to come under more and more pressure to row back on that in the next few days, I think. Vince, you could, when you saw that um, Sajid had flown back from Australia, having been there for some total of a few hours, I'm sure you must have been in very similar situations before. But do you think, you know, looking at what Sajid Javid is going to have to face, whether he can overcome that or whether it's going to be business as usual from this bone-dry Thatcherite? Well, I was careful in my five years never to be so far away from the action that I couldn't be there when I was needed. But anyway, I don't want to personalise it. I think 
Kieran is partly right, it's partly ideological, but, you know, the industrial strategy that we did have under the coalition government, it was very active and it worked very well. We, we had a very close relationship with the industry groups in the car industry, aerospace, pharmaceuticals, in creative industries, not just manufacturing. And this was something which, you know, the private companies benefited just as much as government. It was a partnership. And it wasn't driven by ideological considerations. I borrowed from Michael Heseltine's ideas and from Peter Mandelson's. But, but clearly, if you're an out-and-out Thatcherite, you don't believe in this stuff. What do you think the role of China is in this as well? There are a lot of fingers are being pointed in this news today that China is looking at putting a 46% tariff on some steel coming out of Port Talbot here. And I think a lot of ordinary people, particularly those 14,000 workers, are going to look at this and say, well, hang on a minute, why are we um, co-towing to the Chinese? And we've got problems on our own shores with ste- you know, with jobs and steel and what have you. Well, I'm, I'm all in favour of building good relations and trade with China. And in that sense, I'm supportive of what George Osborne in particular has been doing. But clearly, you shouldn't be co-towing to them. And in this particular case, there is a very specific problem, which relates to the cheap steel allegedly dumped i.e. sold in world markets at less than domestic prices. Uh, There seems to be quite a lot of evidence that this was going on. And if it is going on, then the European Union, like the Americans and others, should be imposing countervailing tariffs. And one of the key issues here was why the British government voted against that, the higher level of tariff. And there are two explanations. One was that it was totally confused and didn't know what it was doing, and I'd rather think that may be the case. The other is that they made a calculated decision to abandon Tartar in order to help the downstream users of cheap imported steel, in which case they should be honest about it and stop going around claiming they're trying to save Tartar because they're not. This is one thing we saw on the front page of the FT this week here, and the idea that Britain's role in Europe was to stop these tariffs coming in on China. And I think, you know, George Osborne, David Cameron are going to come under scrutiny for that. The figures on the tariffs in Chinese steel, the difference between the EU and the US are absolutely staggering. In the US, they have tariffs of approaching 500% on some Chinese steel. In the EU, it's closer to 9 to 13%. There has obviously been a decision at EU level that they're not going to take the approach that the Americans have, that free trade with China matters more. And as Sir Vince was just suggesting, that some people actually quite like cheap steel because it keeps our cars being built or our construction industry going. I suspect there has been a bit of that from the Treasury, that they've looked at the picture quite honestly and said, we benefit more from cheap steel than we do by keeping up what is essentially a non-competitive industry. And much as I'd love to imagine that a Conservative minister will stand up and say that, as Sir Vince suggests, I, I don't think they will. I think they'll continue to fudge. But that does look like it is the case. No, I think that's right. There there is an element of sort of headless chickens, though. I mean, we've got George Osborne still claiming in in Brussels, I think, that the the British are in favour of higher levels of anti-dumping duty. It's not tariffs in the conventional way. We need to be clear about this. This is temporary action on dump products, which there is a, a loophole in international trade law to allow you to do that. But because I'm not in government, I don't know whether this is cock-up or conspiracy, but something totally untoward is happening. And as finally, Vince, one of the things that Labour have suggested this week is the idea of nationalising the whole industry, which is an approach the Labour leadership is very I- in their ideological nature. 
Do you think that would be a bad idea? No, I think it would be a, a terrible idea. I mean, I think there is potentially a role for public ownership, it, it possibly as part of some clever financial scheme of the kind that they seem to have developed in Scotland to help one of the sale operations, a back-to-back deal. But where nationalisation is relevant, and I go back to the point I made earlier, is in acquiring the pension fund. And I think that would be the way the government could make a material difference. That would be a game changer. And Kieran, it's been quite extraordinary this week seeing, you know, this clicktivist army of Labour's promoting this idea, signing a petition to recall Parliament, which is currently on recess, which hasn't happened. And we've seen John McDonnell has put forward his four-point plan to solve this. Um, do you get the sense that Labour is involved in this debate or is it on the sidelines here? Because it does, there is a sense of as was just said, of headless chickens here. I think there's a sense of headless chickens all round. I think this caught a lot of people off guard. I don't think even the managers at Port Talbot expected the board decision that came out from Mumbai earlier this week. So everybody's been caught slightly on the hop. I don't think actually Labour's played a bad hand given the position they're coming from. They do, I think they genuinely believe, Jeremy Corbyn genuinely believes that this industry should be nationalised. And if that's the case, he's making his point loud and clear. He got down there, of course, before I think any Conservative minister, certainly while Sajid Javid was still in the air coming back from Australia. Stephen Kinnock, the local MP, has been very vocal on this. He's played, played a very a blinder, actually. I'm just going to um, briefly use this, abuse this opportunity to do what I ask everyone on this podcast, that this plays into the EU referendum and will no doubt be something that will be raised. Um, while we have you here, Sir Vince, what do you think the outcome of the referendum is going to be on the 23rd of June? Well, I'm an in-person and I, I hold to the belief that that's what will happen. But the current dynamic, if you like, has been with on the Brexit side. And of course, the UKIP people who are very strong in Wales, as you know, they're rapidly emerging as the main opposition to Labour in the valleys, will exploit this issue. And they shouldn't, because as we've just discussed with the trade issue, it's the British who've been blocking action, not the European Union or other members of the European Union. And Kieran? You asking me for a prediction? I am. Let's say 56.44 to remain in. And now on to the national living wage, which has come into force this week. George Osborne said Britain deserved a pay rise and now it's getting one and cited it as one something he is most proud of as Chancellor. But is it going to result in lost jobs or more immigration from the European Union? Well, I've got the two Martins from the FT comment desk here to discuss this. Mr Wolfe, who is a little bit sceptical about it, and Mr Sandbu, who is not so. So, Martin Wolfe, I'll begin. Do you think George Osborne is right when he says 1.3 million people deserve a pay rise and they're getting it? That must surely be a good thing. Well, the logic of that would be, well, if 1.3 million deserve a pay rise, why not 5 million and raise the pay of everybody? So that in itself isn't a good argument. You have to decide the balance of costs and benefits of any decisions of this kind. And the problem with this decision is we simply don't know the balance of costs and benefits. We've got a rough estimate from the Office of Budget Responsibility that it might cost 60,000 jobs. It's highly debated. It wasn't put through the proper procedure, which we've established, which was very, very well operating, successful of the Low Pay Commission, which looked into the costs and benefits, decided what to do. So the truth is, we don't know whether this is the right thing. It's a big jump. There are risks associated with it. And the other thing that worries me is that he's put it forward as some somehow an alternative to welfare. I think the great achievement of the minimum wage is that it was integrated with our in-work benefit system. Pulling it back is not a good idea. And that, I think, is indeed precisely how he's been selling it. 
What's the reason it wasn't put through the proper procedures? Is that just political timing? He wanted to get it out there or is there some economic reason? I think it was entirely political. He wanted to mask, manage the politics of a very big, let's be clear, big attack on the in-work benefit system. Um, he wanted to cut about £12 billion, which is a big sum. This is an offset of about four billion, roughly, and he thought that if he did it at the same time, this would confuse people and conceal what he was really doing. And that actually links with another very important thing. While I'm not against this, it might work out. It's very badly targeted in terms of helping the struggling poor and particularly the poor with families. Uh, a lot of the benefits of the higher living wage go to other people, which is not necessarily bad, but it's not a substitute for a sensible welfare policy. And that's how it was used. So Martin Sambu, why do you think Martin Wolf is wrong about this and you think it's going to be a good thing? Martin is clearly right that this was a very political manoeuvre. We can add that uh, Chancellor Osborne also sort of captured some of the centre ground that Labour had, had vacated, including taking the living wage label. But whatever his motive was, I think there is also a good economic argument here. When he first announced the, the policy, I slightly tongue-in-cheek described it as the Chancellor letting out his kind of in-the-closet inner Scandinavian social democrat the Scandinavian countries are, of course, famous for having achieved a combination of a fairly egalitarian wage structure and high productivity. Now, I say that as a sort of paradox, because that's where we've been in our economic thinking until recently. But there's more and more sign that actually it's not a paradox in that it may be that it's the egalitarianism that produces productivity. And I think George Osborne would not have done this if he expected, even a couple, four or five years down the line, that this would destroy the kind of employment success that Britain has had recently. So I think there might be at least part of his thinking that, that takes on board this new thinking on the minimum wage, which is that by lifting wages at the bottom, you'll disincentivize companies that choose cheap labor rather than productivity-enhancing capital, and that this will actually be a way to not lose jobs, but rather increase productivity on the whole. Well, my feeling about that is it's possible, because we really don't know the effects, but there was a good way of doing this. What he could have done is uh, go to the Low Pay Commission, say, I'm thinking about this really quite large rise, cumulatively about 30%, what will be the economic gains? What will be the effects on productivity? Would it, because we do have a productivity problem. What might be the effects on employment compared uh, with alternative measures? Maybe it should be more. This figure seems to me to be a bit plucked from the air, the discussion about living wages. And that would have reinforced the process. And of course, it would have gone along with not an attempt to cut back in work benefits, but in my view, to actually develop them. I think they've been one of the really big successes of our welfare policy. I think it's clearly one of the reasons we've gone through the crisis with such a limited effect on employment, which I welcome. And I think we could have done this in a much, much better way than in this blatantly political and interfering sort of way. Well, we know, uh, Martin Sambu, that George Osborne is a very political chancellor. Pretty much everything he does has one eye on his positioning, his future career prospects. But this has all got entangled in the EU referendum debate. And we've seen that Brexit campaigners have said this is going to lead to a lot more EU immigration because this would be a pull factor. Is that the case? Look, I think that sort of argument really mixes quite a lot of issues. You know, whether or not Britain is in the EU... You don't want to not do what you think is right by British workers because foreign workers might then try to come to Britain or not. 
As a matter of fact, I think it's probably, I would suspect it's the other way around. When you look at what sort of companies employ, especially low-paid EU migrant workers, they tend to basically do it because those workers are willing to accept the lower wages, and so they are more competitive in that sense than native workers. British workers will either be less likely to, low, to work for the lowest wages, or they will not have the same sort of flexibility in terms of their you know, work scheduling, shifts, night work, and so on, as people who come here solely to work. There's a good argument to be made, I think, that stricter labor market regulation, both in terms of higher minimum wages, and perhaps in regulating how an employer can mess its employees about, would actually reduce the relative advantage for employers to pick a foreign workers when they might as well pick mm. a native one. This is a complicated one, but I agree with Martin, and I would add one point in this respect. I'm assuming that everybody agrees that the, the law will be obeyed. Uh, I'm not talking about the people who might <laughs> choose to def and there will be, of course, a cheating, and that will be relevant. But I presume the Brexiteers are not arguing that all these people come in and, and we, the employers will break the law to employ them at a sub the new national living wage. So that's not the argument. So it will apply to everybody. That will probably encourage quite a small number of people to come in because, in fact, British wages are already so high uh, relative to their wages for most of the people who are coming in from Central and Eastern Europe. So this is, a for them, a smallish difference. But I tend to agree with Martin. It will probably attract some British people into the labour force. And the outcome might not actually be a large increase in jobs going to immigrants. It might actually, it's conceivable that it will in include an increase in the number of people coming in to the labour force from and working who are British? Well, just coming back to your point there on um, Britain having a lot of um, having high wages. The point we talked about in the I think the FT's um, common conference this morning that Britain's wages are particularly high, and the minimum wage compared to America is now very high. If I'm right, yes. Well, after this happens, minimum wage would be, as far as I can see, well, in a few years from now, not much short of fifty percent. Actually, no, much more than 50% higher than the, uh, the dollar minimum, federal minimum wage, which is, as I understand it, only a little over $7 an hour. So uh, we here we're talking about possibly $13, $14, depends on the exchange rate, uh, so even more, closer to double. So the difference is very, very striking, and it does indicate very strongly to me, and I think the evidence is now overwhelming, that the national minimum wage in the US is far too low, and they should have raised it long ago. And while other Martin, once some of the arguments we're hearing against the national living wage are exactly the same ones we heard up against when the minimum wage was introduced many years ago about losing jobs, about immigration and what have you, and a lot of those didn't turn out to happen. That's true. I think that's because some of the original arguments were, they really came from a very conventional textbook analysis of this, which anyone who's studied economics will have seen the labour and the supply and demand for labour graphs. If you artificially change the price of labour, which is the wage, then you'll get less employment. You know, over the last 20, 30 years, people have been looking at whether this actually happens. And it turns out it seems like it doesn't really happen that way. Maybe a little bit, but much less than people would have expected. So the economics that inspired this sort of scepticism to begin with was incomplete at best. Now, there are a lot of reasons why why the standard result might not follow, why you might not get a loss in employment if you pull up wages. One might be 
that actually wages aren't really set in these competitive markets. There's always bargaining going on. And so a lot has to do with the relative power of employer and employee. Add the historical fact that over the last 30, 40 years, pay, wages, have become much more unequally distributed in pretty much every Western country. So something's happened to that distribution between management and labor that, you know, maybe that means that there is slack to be recaptured from the labor side. Um, and finally, there is this Scandinavian thought that if you compress the wage distribution, in Scandinavia it happened by from unions rather than through policies, but it may be that businesses react by investing more in capital. And by doing that, you make labor more productive. And that means that you can employ more. If at the same time, you have a proper aggregate demand policy that keeps demand high, that really is what ultimately is going to determine the employment level in the in the economy. But you mustn't push this beyond a reasonable limit. And this is a game where the yes. banning is. Yes. Obviously, you know, to take it true, if we raise all the wages 10 times, we know there will be higher unemployment. I were probably massive. Most of us will be possibly without a job. <laughs> so you have to put it in proportion. Actually, Martin left out another argument, which I think is probably an important one, which is actually paying people more motivates them, makes yes. them better workers. It makes them more productive, which actually excites me more than the, cap the substitution of capital for right. labor. Yeah. And that is, I think, a fairly good argument. In the margins we're talking about here, whether moving from our old minimum wage to the national living wage will be a disaster, I suspect not. I liked our process, our procedure, the rational way we did it and the way we integrated with the welfare state. And I feel that George Osborne's very political approach has messed this up. I don't, not sure that this is so bad, but we don't know. But what is he going to do next? Although there is a case for, for saying that that process, which was technocratic and independent was a little bit stuck in that very two-dimensional framework of trading off employment against the wage level and not really taking into account all these other factors. And Fanny, I'm sorry you could both keep going this for a long time. I'm going to spring one last thing on you, which is what I ask everyone who comes on the FT Politics podcast. This is all obviously tied into the EU referendum. Martin Wolf, what do you think is going to happen on June the 23rd? I think that the chances are, I won't give the odds here, that the British will in the end uh, decide, perhaps somewhat unenthusiastically, to stay in. And Martin Sanbu? Well, I will, on the odds, I will defer to the betting markets, which put the odds at about 70, 75% for a vote to remain. Personally, I think fairly comfortably that there'll be a large margin for remaining. So that's two for the in-count from our guests this week. That's it for this week's episode. Thank you to all our guests for joining. We'll be back next Saturday for another instalment of FT Politics. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, you might like to try our FT News podcasts, which focus on one of the main issues of the day and bring you the insights and expertise of our global network of journalists, as well as outside contributors. You can download these at ft.com slash podcasts most days of the week. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. 
you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program. The secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com.